2: and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. This morning we dig into some impressive numbers being forecast for the Australian agricultural sector. In a year marked by flooding and sodden conditions for crops and livestock, the key numbers for production and exports are at or near record levels. But it's bad news for consumer prices.
3: It's, it's a high rise. I mean, this time of year, usually we're purchasing onions, 10 kilo onions for maybe $7 a bag. And now we're purchasing you know close to 20 before we get there Serena Locke is joining
2: me to run through this week's rural news Serena the first story i want to talk about combines two extremes of australian life and the outcome isn't very good at all
4: We've been seeing some devastating pictures all year of flooding in parts of New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria, and the results of which will be a years of recovery with the bill running into the billions. But the inundation is also holding up water security projects that would have prevented country towns from running out of water in the next drought. The New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment says the $1 billion spent on projects under its Safe and Secure Water Programme program will leave almost 450,000 people better off in dry conditions. But the acting Chief Executive of Water Infrastructure in New South Wales, Ingrid Emery, says floods, worker shortages and a lack of building materials have delayed progress.
5: Flooding in particular has been really challenging because it meant that it's been really difficult to access sites even, let alone do any construction works on them. I can't say with any certainty that when we come into drought, all of those projects will be finished and then enough will have been done.
2: Okay, Serena, take us to the big state now where there are some very unhappy recreational fishermen.
4: Yes, you're talking about Western Australia, where recreational fishing for demersal species, including dewfish and snapper, has been banned for six months of the year. So the demersal fish are known as groundfish, and they live and feed near the bottom of the seas and lakes. Now, the state government there has extended a two-month ban from Augusta at the southern tip of WA to Kalbarri, nearly. 600 kilometres north of Perth by another four months at different intervals throughout the year. Fisheries Minister Don Punch also announced a halving of commercial catch limits and support for fishing businesses to cope with the cut. Mr Punch says the consequences could have been far worse if nothing was done.
6: If we don't
7: put these measures in place then we may well be facing a much more challenging situation in two or three years time that could even lead to the closure of the fishery in a similar way to that which has occurred in South Australia with the pink snapper sector, you
2: mentioned there there was a support package for the commercial side of the industry. How have they reacted to this news?
4: Yeah, well, the WA commercial fishing industry says the ban does not go far enough to stop overfishing by the recreational sector. Um, from January 1st, the commercial catch is being halved to 240 tonnes, and the government will offer voluntary buybacks of fishing licences. Daryl Hockey is the chief executive of the WA Fishing Industry Council, he says it's the worst possible outcome.
8: The commercial industry has put forward its offer to take a full 50% cut and we're going to deliver that, but unfortunately what's been offered by the government will not deliver a 50% cut on behalf of the recreational sector and then overall we see the sustainability of this fishery as being under threat.
2: Right, so the commercial people are having a little bit of a jab at the wreckfishers there.
4: Yeah, the peak body for wreckfishers in WA say the measures favour the commercial sector, so they're firing back, and they've actually lobbied for a five-month ban. Now, others, like the editor of the Western Angler, Scott Coughlin, have concerns about the tourism implications. Mr Coughlin says next year's Calberry Sports Fishing Classic has been cancelled in response to the ban.
9: Very popular event, fished by locals and visitors and provides provides a great economic boost for the town in February when when tourism to the town is historically pretty quiet otherwise. So I think there's going to be some really significant impacts.
2: There are always difficult environmental policies to put in place, the fishing bans. I know in Victoria around the, the, the lakes in Gippsland, um, they never go down well. And it also reminds me of the near annual debate we have over the duck shooting season in Victoria.
4: Yeah, well, in New South Wales, they imposed catch limits, but also buybacks of licences and some commercial fishers just went broke. They'd made big investments and the buyback sank them. So it was a very unpopular move and the restructure lasted five years or more. It was pretty heart wrenching for those people. Mm.
2: Well, Serena, let's get one more beat on aquaculture and something that potentially a lot more people may be impacted by nationwide.
4: Well, we hate to see it, but a popular Christmas seafood could be out of reach for some customers this year, as wholesale and supermarkets are buying in salmon at 30-year price highs. Now, Sally and Phil Maher own Ballarat Seafoods in Victoria, and they say storms across the east coast of Australia have reduced the amount of time that fishers can spend out at sea, resulting in demand outstripping supply, along with a decline in the growth due to warmer waters. Mr. Ma says the price rises are coming on top of rises earlier this year.
6: The prices of salmon went up mid-year. They went up again in the last couple of months. Due to half a dozen reasons, COVID is one, the demand for salmon globally, the growth with Mother Nature, weather, packaging, fuel, feed costs for the salmon producers, then that's got to be put back to us. We've got to put our costs up as well because of fuel um, and ongoing costs.
2: Well, let's go to some land-based matters now and some forecasts and analysis out this week for the dairy sector.
4: Yeah, so we're in a different sector, but the inflation theme is there. We've been paying more for dairy as consumers and farmers are also getting higher farm gate milk prices, but production has still dropped by 6.5% for the season to October. Dairy Australia's latest Situation and Outlook report says consumers are increasingly price sensitive. So we balk at, you know, Higher prices for butter, ever higher prices, and production in the northern hemisphere is now ramping up because they're coming into sp- spring summer. Now, however, the dairy industry's insights and analysis manager John Droppett says seasonal conditions will continue to be the biggest wild card for the industry over the next few months.
7: So, farmers are are profitable. But of course, there's some real um, real challenges that have defined 2022. So high costs being one of them, uh, staff shortages being another. And on top of that now, uh, through spring, we've had the wet conditions and the flooding. So uh, from a farm perspective, uh, that's thrown some, uh, you know, some extra curveballs out, especially for the farmers that are directly impacted.
2: You mentioned in the dairy industry, at least, that consumers were balking at higher prices. And my assumption during this inflationary period would be that shoppers would be switching down to budget brands or cheaper versions of the product they usually buy to save some money. So tell us what's happening to organic produce sales, which are usually sold at a premium price.
4: Yes, I balk at prices for organics. But anyway, the the (laughs) peak body for Australia's organic industry is optimistic about the demand Mm. for its uh, members. products. Produce, uh, despite these rising costs of, of living pressures. Nikki Ford is the chief executive of Australian Organic Limited, and she says research from earlier this year shows that on average, organic products are around 30% more expensive than conventional items across the supermarket shelves. That is not just fruit and vegetables, but other processed organic food. However, some lines are cheaper.
10: We have seen um, evidence in the last research we did that you know, those who are buying organic on a regular basis have actually bought more. Um, in fact, um, the last market report that we provided uh, last year um, demonstrated that 56% of those who were buying organic actually bought more than what they did
2: previously. I'll leave that to the listeners to work out who potentially is buying organic produce at the supermarket. <laughs>
4: yes, well, I put it back because I think, oh, well, I can grow my own organic, but I've got to buy this cheaper because that's why I'm at the supermarket.
2: <laughs> well, Serena, the next story will be music to farmers ears and potentially their wallets as well as they map out next season's business plan.
4: Yes. Well, I'm happy to announce that Australian farmers can expect some relief, at least in potash and phosphate prices over the next six months. But unfortunately, nitrogen fertiliser prices are set to rise, according to Rabobank. Rabobank does a fertiliser outlook, which points to price trends and volatility that is peaking. And following previous years, especially after the 2008 global financial crisis, prices should come down in the coming months. But Rabobank Senior, uh, Sydney-based farm inputs analyst, Victor Pistoia, says primary producers should keep a close eye on the prices as buying at the right time will be critical.
7: Hopefully they will manage to keep the margins positive for the coming season. And depending on
10: how the farmers
7: set the enterprise as a whole and especially when they are able to buy fertiliser. So as we've seen in this season, Timing is critical for coming season.
2: Finally today, Serena, have you put the Chrissy tree up yet? Uh, No, no, because we might have to move rental. So, you know, do we move a Christmas tree? And (laughs) if you did, would it be real or plastic?
4: I go for real. I love the smell of the pine needles. So, you know, and sustainability experts are calling for the bauble buffs to consider alternatives to plastic trees to get that more environmentally friendly tree. A researcher at Monash Sustainable Development Institute is urging Christmas revellers to ditch plans to buy a new plastic tree to avoid perpetuating demand for the products. Now, the Costa family has been selling Christmas trees at their Ballarat region farm for nearly 50 years and they say the trend towards natural trees is becoming more common. And Zero Waste Australia campaign coordinator for the National Toxics Network, Jane Bremer, says, there were other issues to consider when investing in products made from non-recyclable plastics
11: plastic Christmas trees are made to be put inside your home. They often contain flame retardants because, you know, people don't want them to, to catch fire. But these additives and these chemicals and the design of, of plastic Christmas trees makes them particularly hazardous. If you've got a plastic Christmas tree and you want to use it, that's fine. Don't give yourself a guilt trip about it. Keep using it. Clean it. Reusing uh, your, your plastic Christmas tree is much better than throwing it out and going and buying a new one.
2: My share house is and has been a Christmas tree free zone for coming up to eight years now. I don't think anyone wants to take on the responsibility of putting it up or taking it down.
4: Yes, it's the cleaning up that's annoying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Serena, it's lovely to have you back. Thank you for that wrap of Rural News this week. Talk to you again next week. Thank you.
5: Hi, Patricia Carvellis here from RN Breakfast. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and sit down with the day's decision makers and risk takers. Travel the world to hear the latest news breaking across the globe. Plus, meet the world's finest artists, musicians and writers. That's every weekday morning from 6am on RN Breakfast. Tune in right here on ABC RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
2: This week, we're visiting a farm in North East Victoria, growing edible native crops. Think finger limes, bush mints, lemon myrtle, and pepperberries. It's part of a research project looking at drought resilient farming. We'll hear about works to protect salt marshes and mangroves on New South Wales farms. The threatened ecosystems have been found to play an important role in sequestering carbon. And we'll meet a flower farming family who are growing pretty peonies, but not for the commercial flower market. They're focused on farm gate sales and they invite customers to pick their own bunches.
8: We really like our pick your own days that people can come and share in them with us and get amongst the plants. It's a good family day out, the kids come, there's plenty of grass as you can see, so people run around, kids run around and mum gets to pick some flowers and have a nice time. We see a lot of um, generations coming together, so it might be mum and grandma and the kids as well all come for a nice day out.
2: We'll visit that flower farm in northwest Tasmania that's become a tourist destination that's coming up. First today, we're off to a film premiere. Sydney-based filmmaker Joanna Joy has brought author Judith Wright's story of her family's colonial history in central Queensland to life on the big screen. The filmmaker collaborated with traditional owners to tell the story of the resilience of local Indigenous people. It was filmed on location in central Queensland with Aboriginal actors taking on starring roles. Reporter Inga Stutzner went along to a premiere in Rockhampton, where the film screened to an enthusiastic and emotional audience.
12: Generations of Men began when I was 14 years old. My dad gave me a copy of the book. He really loves Judith Wright. And when he gave me the book, he said, I know it's called Generations of Men, but it's actually all about the women. So it's a really interesting story because it's two books, you know, one is kind of a colonial history. The other is kind of more of a revisionist version, um, looking at indigenous language groups and cultures and history on that particular um, area of land around May Downs and the cattle stations out there. It's not very often that people rewrite their own work. um, And I think that's pretty bold and brave of Judith to look at what she'd written, uh, even though it's a fantastic book and go, that's not good enough, I wanna do that again and so she spent years researching that and I wanted to combine those two lenses together in a film that, yeah, paid tribute to Judith Ratt's legacy but also, you know, featured the people and the language of the land on which the story was set. Well, hello, my name
11: is Margaret Hornigold and I'm a Burrida and Cabal person um, and was um, involved with this production of this film in the early days. Um, For May Downs, the station, that's where my father was born. Um, I've been out there along the Isaac River where those beautiful big trees are. I've walked in the water there, I've spoken to the trees and to the spirits who are out there. So it was just magnificent seeing it captured in that way. But when Joe first came, I just thought this is a glorious opportunity for um, Aboriginal people from this land to be able to put their story out there and to have um, it, the language in use too and I was just blown away by those young actors. They defied
13: the authorities and at risk to themselves and their families they continued to practice culture and speak their language. Uh, my name is Naya Hatfield but I usually get called Naya Nikki, Naya is auntie in our Durrumbaa language. What Judith Wright wrote in that, her book, it was the same thing our old people have been telling us for years and years about how we used to interact with our neighbours and everything, how we married into our neighbours, how we lived with our neighbours. This is for thousands and thousands of years. And we were on good... Um, our neighbours to the west and to the north, we always had good relationships. We married into each other and um, and when i seen this in judith Wright's book i just like i said i was amazed i said oh my gosh this is what our old people have been telling us all along My
14: name's Nikki Muller. Um, I was one of the Burrata um, traditional owners that I uh, just looked after everybody on set and just uh, ensured that where they were filming was in safe places and not, any, not on our sacred um, places. When obviously Joe and the crew had mapped out some areas on where they were going to film because of, because of the scenery, because it's such a beautiful place up there, many beautiful places, um, when it come down for us to check, Uh, the areas that they would mapped out, it was actually in areas where one was quite significant to our men's, and that's our men's business, so we had to make sure that no one was um, near that area at all, particularly women as well. My Aunty Nancy who's one of the elders, you know, left out of the, the 16, and she's like in her 80s. She said to me there tonight, she said, oh, Nick, she said, that made our country beautiful. It took me back. It took her back. Seeing that on the big screen like that took her back. Annie Nance was born on that country, not in the house, not in anything. She was born on that, on that dirt. So you know that would have been truly amazing for her to feel feel that. Just an amazing thing, and I think our family will be ever so proud because there's a lot of our family that haven't returned to country yet, and we're we're bringing them all home. You know, bringing them all home slowly. So when they get wind of that and see that, they're actually going to go, "Oh my God, this is our country. We we need to stop talking about it, and we need to go." Yeah.
1: Lani Hatfield. I sat in the writing rooms with them and kind of had a back and forth contribution, and then um, we worked together. and The girls brought me on as co-producer to the film, which was, yeah, a really amazing experience.
6: Uh, hi, my name's Andrew Young. I am from Warrendale and Rockhampton.
2: Uh, I am an Anangu man. I played the character Patty. Or his Daramul name is Borongai.
13: I'm Zali Hayden. I'm from Rockhampton. My mob is Drumble. in the film Generations of Men. My name is Linda, and it means sun go down. The way they uh, they use the Daramul language and, um, and and their own language, it's not all Daramul language, and um, and they just uh, yeah they've they've really done us proud,
12: yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Hill, Clarkwood at Clark Creek. It's, it's a hard situation, isn't it? The history is history and we can't change it. We can't do anything about it. The pe- Indigenous people are very welcome at our place. They come to our place and enjoy their culture there. So it's, you know, we just, it's history. We just have to live with it and accept it and acknowledge it and, you know, make films about it so that it doesn't get lost.
8: So yeah, so this is coming out into the main paddock. Um, So we've got nearly 8,000 plants out here. Uh, The oldest were planted 17 years ago. At the end of spring, this
1: flower farm in northern Tasmania is a beautiful sight. Fields of thousands of fluffy white and pink flowers sway in the breeze. And it's a scene that flower grower Andrea O'Halloran doesn't take for granted.
8: Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely. I really look forward to November each year. Um, I just find it so amazing.
1: Hello, I'm Meg Powell. I'm visiting Andrea's family business, Heathermore Peonies at La Trobe, near the state's northwest coast. This peony farm has been nearly two decades in the making.
8: Uh, So we planted our first plants 17 years ago and it took about three years to get the entire planting of 8,000 plants in. Um, We didn't get any... You don't normally get blooms off peonies in the first couple of years. So the first few years were really just about getting the bushes up and going. Uh, And so we've probably been picking flowers, I guess, for 14 years. Originally, the business plan was to sell the peonies on the cut
1: flower market. But in more recent years, the family has opted for a different model, focused on local markets, farm gate sales and tourism, inviting customers to come and pick their own blooms.
8: We stepped away from the commercial sales, we found them just a little bit too intensive and um, the market's getting probably a bit tight there, whereas we quite enjoy this side of being able to go to the farmer's markets with our bunch flowers or sell them from our gate and also welcome people into the paddock on our open days for pick-your-own sessions.
1: Peonies, it's so fast. There's nothing and then suddenly there's some shoots and then suddenly there's a whole bush and suddenly flowers.
8: Yeah, so they grow from kind of a rootstock tuber in the ground, Um, so they're a perennial plant that die off each year and so this paddock, would you believe, was bare at the beginning of September so less than three months later we're standing here and we've got not only giant bushes with flowers on them but some of them are already finished Um, so it's really incredible to watch. Every year it still amazes me that in the space of 10 to 12 weeks we go from bare ground with tiny little shoots poking through all the way up into these amazing bushes with so many flowers on them.
1: The flowering window itself is quite short.
8: Yeah so most varieties really only flower across 10 to 14 days Um, so we extend our picking window out to about three weeks by a few different varieties. Sometimes we can get four weeks depending on how the season runs um, with earlier and later varieties but yes each bush is really not a large window
1: and how has the season been this year it's been terrible weather for a lot of farmers
8: look like everyone else we've certainly noticed the effects the wetness the lack of sunshine so the low light levels certainly have caused us to have a later start Um, and it really just had a lot of the plants sitting there ready so that when the sunshine did come out they all started blooming and now we're over and done with quite quickly so it's been a very condensed window this year a few different pinks out here and a white one as well.
1: What's this one?
8: Uh, So this is Felix Cruz. Uh, He's a bright pink peony and also scented so quite lovely. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm. One of the ways that your family likes to sell your peonies is through open days. People have been coming to those even though it's been pouring with rain.
8: Yes and people have come in Decent winds and it has been wet on days and we're still very grateful that people have come out and been able to share the flowers with us. Um, And we really like just getting to chat to people and walk amongst the flowers with them.
1: That's um, quite a testament to people's love of of these flowers. Why do you think they are so popular?
8: I mean, like, they're a beautiful flower. Like, they're just genuinely so lovely. Uh, But I think the fact that it's such a short season and you can only get them locally for such a narrow period of the year adds to that specialness of them um, and people then for or start really associating special things with the flowers.
1: How many people does it take to run the operation out here?
8: Uh, so we're very much a family business um, and we, being the short season that peonies are, we sort of slot them in around other things that are going on. Um, so my dad, he's busy farming a lot of the time, so he does a lot of the growing of our flowers, getting them up and going, making sure they're growing well, the watering and such. Uh, my brother... And I then do a lot of the picking and bunching. Um, my brother heads off to the harvest market in Launceston every week, sells a bunches of flowers there, and I am more involved in our open days and making sure our bunches are all up and going.
1: yeah andrea, you're a, you're a mother of two kids under three. You live and work over at the Tamar Valley and you're doing the peonies here. Are you exhausted at the moment?
8: Slightly, (laughs) but uh, look, we're surrounded by beautiful flowers, so that really helps and makes it worthwhile
2: flower grower Andrea O'Halloran showing reporter Meg Powell around Heathmoor, her family's peony farm in northwest Victoria. For more on that story, including photos of those beautiful flowers, head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN. Look for Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper with you for Country Breakfast on RN this morning. Still to come, how fencing off parts of farms is helping save an important ecosystem and breeding habitat for fish and birds and the native crops that could help farmers adjust to drier times.
15: It's morning tea time, and steeping in the kettle is fresh bush mint tea and homemade cake is being passed around.
6: There's some lemon myrtle cake that'll go really well with that, so help yourself.
15: These indigenous flavours could one day be more common as researchers look at ways of farming that will be drought resilient in the future. Yeah, go for it. Hello, I'm Annie Brown, and I've come along to a farm at Kagania in northeast Victoria's Kiwa Valley, where edible plants are being grown and harvested. This property is taking part in a University of Melbourne research project on redesigning broadacre farming systems. Doran Gupta, a crop researcher based at the university's Dookie campus, says growing a more diverse range of crops will be important in a changing climate.
0: Primarily, when we look for broadacre cropping, uh, we are um, trying to promote and uh, we are trying to address the challenge when we have uh, on farm only two major crops growing, such as soybean and canola. We don't have any other vegetation on those farms. So to enhance their um, resilience over years, um, having more diversity on farms, we are encouraging having native grasses. Whereas when we think of what we have here at Gaze Farm, we do have native crops. That is something to consider from a bigger perspective, that we want to have more diversified options in our diet, on our plate, and that will come when we will think of including these native crops they are not going to replace the broadacre crops which are our staples but having uh, those options in market when we produce them when we sell them coming to our plates uh, that is something um, we are really keen to make it happen and uh, the part of project which is uh, w- through which we are working at gaze farm is addressing that bigger bigger challenge
15: yeah so perhaps going back to indigenous cropping yeah and and putting some more of those indigenous crops back into our diet.
0: That's correct. Um, and and also, we we have uh, really forgotten some of the grains, such as kangaroo grass. So on Gay's farm, we have on a um, sloppy piece of land, kangaroo grass, not, not just to prevent the soil erosion, but also to consider um, this particular crop as a future grain crop, where you might find in coming years on shells um, a bread which is made with kangaroo grass grain.
15: On a steep hillside in the Kiwa Valley, Indigenous farmer Gay Baker has been busy turning slopy land into cropping country. She is in the third year of growing Indigenous crops commercially.
11: I'm establishing my business, which is Gap Flat Track, uh, Edible Natives. The Kiwa Valley is uh, a very rich, productive area, um, and it has been for very many years. Where I'm located right here is up on the side of the mountain, so it's quite steep. Uh, realistically, not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> and it's land that your average farmer down through the middle of the valley who has nice flat land, river flats, etc., they don't really consider that this land up here is viable. The work that I've done here is to put in a road and to terrace the area so that we could make flat areas so that you can actually work on flat areas. It's just that they're small flat areas on the side of the hill. The farm grows a range of Indigenous crops. So we have Tasmanian mountain pepper, three different sorts of lily pillies, three different sorts of finger limes, lemon myrtle, and then we have... Murnong native parsley, native celery, two at the moment only two different mints. The main one that I started with was Murnong. Tell me a bit about the story of Murnong. It used to be grown a lot here in this area, didn't it? Yes. Murnong was a staple crop for Indigenous peoples in a lot of Eastern Australia areas and it was. Um, eaten out basically by your sheep and cattle and so forth, so Murnong, in my opinion, was always a cultivated vegetable and so what has survived has now reverted back to its wild stock. So we now are in the process of seed selection and plant selection and taste selection and as part of that also too we will be looking for shapes of tubers, sizes of tubers, that sort of thing, that will be acceptable to go into commercial production. Because one of the things that we meet is a bit of resistance that it doesn't look like what the public has been trained to think that food should look like. A native parsnip needs to look something like a parsnip. With a growing demand for native foods, Ms. Baker hopes to show that it is profitable. There is a huge demand. There's a huge interest and there's a huge demand for native foods. The industry can't keep up with supply. That's the problem. We can't meet supply. I'd really like to see a connection between lots of small growers to coming together so that we've got a big enough supply. You know, if you've got a number of people all doing that, then that makes much bigger numbers. It makes the whole industry much stronger.
6: Oh, this place here is about 200 acres. It's probably about 80 acres of it is salt marsh. Mm. So it's pretty... Um, it's low country. You can't, can't make any feed or sides of it, so it's just... A people are uh, holding ground for cows.
10: Dairy farmer Paul Anderson milks 240 cows at his family property here at Piree, a farming district in the Shoalhaven region of south-east New South Wales. The land here is a mix of productive pasture and wetlands,
6: including salt marsh. They can't grow, you can't grow any pastures. I mean, if they can't grow fireweed, well, you can't grow nothing. So, really, it's pretty dead land. So, it's if we can... Ah, uh, beautified a bit more, whatever. It's because we, we do have a bit of a wetland area on, on here as well, and there's, there's a few little birds there and water there all the time. So it's, it's, it's um, not too bad. And while the salt marsh land may not hold value in terms of
10: agricultural production, there's a renewed push to protect salt marsh and mangroves, like the ones found here. That's because scientists understand that these threatened ecosystems are able to sequester carbon faster than tropical rainforests. Hello, I'm Josh Becker. I'm here on the Andersons property where Paul and his brother Keith are working with local land services to fence off and protect salt marsh country. Sonia Bizzacco is a senior local land services officer working on this project.
5: Yeah, so what's really great about this project is, on Andersons, is that we're fencing off 17 hectares of what I would say is largely, say, 80% coastal salt marsh and around uh, 10 to 20% of mangroves and swamp oak forest. So that's really great. That's a really large, significant area that Andersons are putting aside towards having an environmental gain. And I've been approaching a lot of farmers in the Piree area because there are actually there's actually 220 hectares of salt marsh uh, in the Shoalhaven, and that's the la- largest area of salt marsh that there is in the whole of the southeast. Uh, how significant of, as an ecosystem is the salt marsh? Well, a lot of people don't even realise really what salt marsh is. Um, and it, it is that um, intertidal community that's that's on the landward side of mangroves. Uh, so trees aren't able to grow in that area. And it's usually full of grasses, reeds, um, succulents um, and rushes. Salt marsh is really important for lots of different reasons. Um, one reason a lot of people don't realise is that coastal salt marsh is able to absorb eight times as much carbon and at 35 times the rate than a land based forest. Um, so, yeah, it's very important for doing that. Not only that, it's very important in improving water quality. So, what it does is it actually acts as a buffer between the terrestrial and aquatic environment. So, sediment and off farm runoff, uh, such as nitrogen and contaminants, is actually filtered through the salt marsh and absorbed and recycled by the salt marsh. And it's actually really good at holding the edge of our estuaries down, and our waterways down. So, as we're seeing more extreme advance and more wave energy destroying our coastlines salt marsh is really good at kind of anchoring it down and uh, reducing the effects of that happening another reason why coastal salt marsh is also very important is its value as a habitat so uh, studies have been done it's shown that over 40 different fish species that utilize salt marsh for habitat a lot of those being commercial species species um, and some of those uh, also use that area as a nursery for younger fish and there's a huge amount of other species also use coastal salt marsh, uh, such as migratory species, species uh, such as the sandpipers and mammals and raptors and yeah, many different species. How would you rate the quality of the salt marshes in the southeast New South Wales? Uh, it does vary, very, very much between the region. I tend to think the further south you go, uh, the salt marsh is in very good condition further south. Um, in general, I would say it's in good condition. What role can farmers have in in protecting these salt marshes? Yeah, so it's really important to be able to... The first step really is to exclude stock off these very sensitive areas because what happens is uh, the salt marsh plants get eaten and they get trodden on and pugging occurs and that's where the hooves... uh, dig holes into the salt marsh. And salt marsh is really sensitive in that it requires a certain elevation to actually regenerate. So if all of the topsoil is lost in salt marsh, it takes it, it. won't regenerate and it'll stay completely bare. So it won't be able to perform all those fantastic functions I was talking about before. Is there a downside in uh, fencing off this area that
10: has once been used for grazing that people lose a part of their farm? Or are you hearing feedback from farmers that they're happy to go down that path?
5: Uh, I often cold call landholders and I uh, target landholders that have large areas of coastal salt marsh and most landholders that I talk to are very keen actually to be part of our project and because this vegetation community is so important uh, we have really good incentive programs particularly around coastal salt marsh to protect these areas and um, often they aren't worth very much economically anyway they have very low grazing capacity there aren't thick dense plants in there you grass can't grow in that area so it's not much of a loss for those landholders. And dairy farmer Paul Anderson says he's happy to fence off the salt marsh on his
10: land and keep animals out of the area for the benefit of the environment.
6: Oh yeah, I mean, you can't use it for anything anyway, so if you're just um, trying to save it and um, at the end of the day, the farmer is I think it is the best environmentalist, uh, because we walk the ground and, uh, and we know what they you know, can and can't do
2: dairy farmer Paul Anderson from Pyrie in the southeast of New South Wales ending that report from Josh Becker. You can read more about that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program you can check out the Country Breakfast program page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash RN. Know
15: your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up to the minute critical
14: information. We have a
15: Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. The Australian almond
2: industry's harvest results are finally in for the 21 22 season, and it's a new record. That's despite the La Nina weather causing crop losses and delays in processing. Eliza Burlage has this report.
12: The Almond Board of Australia's latest insights report reveals the saleable production for 2022 is forecast to be about 143,805 tonnes. That's up from the 2021 total of 124,499 tonnes. Chief Executive Tim Jackson says growers managed the record yield despite challenges.
7: We were expecting more damage due to the wet weather but um, the reports we are receiving from our markers and process suggest that, um, it, uh, that they've been able to salvage the crop in a much better way than they thought earlier in the year. So right across the region, in the Riverina probably had the most challenging year of all time with unprecedented rainfall since the start of the year. So it's a, a tribute to their... Ability to keep their product dry, and for the processors to be able to process that product.
12: And in terms of the breakdown of, of types of almonds that were harvested this year, what did that look like?
7: So there was a reduced volume of in-shell this year due to the wet weather. Wet weather and in-shell does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to, to crack that out. So normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they're nearly, well, a hundred percent in-shell related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year.
2: That was the Armand Board of Australia's Tim Jackson ending Eliza Berlage's report. Some rough conditions on the east coast of Australia hasn't gotten in the way of another bumper year for many farmers. The national commodity forecaster, Abares, expects farm exports to hit a record-breaking $72 billion this financial year, while the gross value of farm production and the national winter grain harvest will be close to the best on record. I asked Abares executive director, Dr. Jared Greenville, about the impressive numbers that have been achieved
9: despite the challenges. Yeah, it's certainly been an eventful year this year, um, and I guess as the season continues, we're seeing overall some pretty good conditions, like when you take a national kind of perspective, and we're forecasting that the gross value of agriculture production is going to be pretty much on par with the record that it set last year at $85 billion. Um, What we're also seeing is some record levels of exports, both in terms of the value of those exports and and how much we're getting out. And exports are set to hit around $72 billion this year, which is well and truly a record for the sector. And what's behind those record export numbers? Yeah, it's a combination of really high global prices, particularly across those grain products, but our um, major winter crops. So we've got high prices for barley, continuing high prices for canola, also high prices for wheat, um, and that's flowing through to high export returns. The other thing that's really bumped up those crop exports and those export figures has been a delayed harvest from last year in terms of our cotton crop. And a lot of that was forward sold and, and we're expecting that to flow out this financial year, which is giving that extra boost in terms of that overall number. When I was looking at the estimates back in March or
2: June, we reported that farmers were following the money and planting some pretty big canola crops. That was also visually evident as I drove around Victoria's grain growing regions earlier this year. How much does canola actually account for
9: in the value of this year's crop? Yeah, there's certainly part of that's hanging over on the export figures um, that those high prices and that that large crop last year, some of that's been sold into this financial year. Um, But those high prices also, led to quite a significant incentive for producers to put canola in the ground and so what we're actually expecting this year is there to be a larger canola crop even though the prices have come back a fair bit um, they're still at historic highs and they've come back largely because the conditions in in growing conditions in Canada have improved significantly on what we saw last year um, just with the the weather conditions and that's seen a rebound in, in Canadian production that, but in terms of the overall mix, we're seeing you know, a bit of last year in terms of the, the export figures. But for this year, the crop value for canola is really driven by the large planting that we saw. We've heard a lot about port congestion,
2: trucking shortages and logistical challenges this year. And yet, as this report shows, we've still been pumping out $5 billion worth of agricultural exports every month
9: since November last year. Yeah that's right we still managed to get a lot of product out and so we're exporting our export pace is kind of at at its you know peak level like we saw similar kind of export pace in the 2016-17 season and that's been repeated this year despite all the challenges. Um, The additional challenge though at the moment is that we've now kind of had back to back almost three consecutive years of really high crop volumes and they've just been escalating Um, and so there's still a lot of crop that's to move. Um, but we're, we're seeing, you know, I guess the ports and, and our international buyers still bringing, you know, buying a lot from Australia and, and they're still servicing a lot. But there's, you know, I guess a lot more still to go out.
2: Jared, does it also reflect the higher global demand that we've seen? We've reported on Country Breakfast about droughts in the Americas and Europe, as well as the impact of the war in Ukraine on global grain supplies.
9: Yeah, so given those global disruptions that we've seen in the, the poor growing season, particularly last season, and, and with the late Formula Nina here, that's also put a dampener on the expectations of some of the other producing regions. Countries and, and other buyers have really turned to Australia as uh, have been a fairly re- reliable producer of food. Um, and we've seen that continue. And so that's, that's been a, a, I guess, a bit of a reason why we've been able to export or that demand side has been so high. And that's really kind of contributed to the high export pace.
2: There are these high commodity prices that you've mentioned, but there's also some huge bills that have been paid this year for fuel, fertiliser and agri-chemicals. So how will that impact the actual profit margins?
9: Yeah we're seeing a real kind of squeeze starting to occur and we've got high prices which is, is really good in terms of you know helping with that squeeze but those high input prices particularly fertiliser fuel um, will put a and and also high transport costs that result from that It's putting a squeeze on that farm profit um, side of the ledger um, and we're expecting that to decline from last year. So last year we saw some record levels of farm profits across the country but this year going in, although we we haven't got our full survey results back, but based on what we're observing in terms of fertiliser prices which have been around three times above what they might otherwise be. Um, We're expecting that to squeeze out quite a lot. Are these trends we've been discussing, um, high grain prices,
2: high inputs, are they having the same impact on livestock
9: producers? Yeah, so with livestock, we're expecting livestock really to hold steady and the the total livestock sector value is gonna be sitting around $34 billion this year. That's been supported by, I think, really good pasture that's out in the fields. And so the demand for some of those feedstocks out of the intensive industries has been lower. Um, But what we're seeing is really that kind of continued rebound from the drought where we saw... Know, the herd and flock reach those really low levels um, our sheep flock is back up to where it was kind of those pre drought levels and our national herd has rebounded quite a lot um, that's gonna that's really kind of influencing the production side um, but for meat processes as well the the lack of, of labor early on and also you know disruptions due to floods and, and other transport issues has really seen some break up in terms of overall production throughout the year and throughput and that's been a bit disrupted and that's kept Overall volumes down a little bit. I'm speaking with AVA's
2: executive director, Dr. Jared
9: Greenville, on Country Breakfast
2: this morning. Jared, it's a situation that's still unfolding, but what have you been able to
9: discern about the impact of the flooding we've seen on the East Coast? Yeah, so the rainfall and that, those floodwaters has certainly had an impact, and we're seeing the biggest impact in New South Wales in particular. Um, we've estimated that around 16% of the crop, the winter crop, has been abandoned because of flood flooding and the flooding events, and that's knocked down our expectation in terms of the overall winter crop coming out of New South Wales by around 2 million tonnes. Um, in other states, we've seen about 7% of the area left, like the crop abandonment figures for Victoria. Um, and in Queensland, it's been less at about 5%. Um, but Queensland also had a bit of a slower start because of the wet conditions, particularly in the Darling Downs, that led to a lower area planted. So for New South Wales, it's a bit more definitive, I guess, in terms of what we've seen in terms of the loss of that 2 million tonnes. But There's a couple of confounding factors, particularly in in Victoria, where we're seeing, you know, the flooding events in the northern regions, particularly, you know, take out some some crop area, but those same weather events have led to those pretty exceptional conditions elsewhere, particularly in the Mallee and the Wimmera, and that's led to higher yields and higher production. And those two factors seem to be, at this point, really counterbalancing each other, Um, but we'll have to wait and see, because there's still a fair bit to run in this, this harvest.
2: And just finally, as we head into Christmas, what are you expecting in terms of fresh fruit and vegetable prices?
9: Yeah, I mean, we're expecting, I guess, overall price story for fruit and veg to be one of continued increase. And we've seen it back off, though, a little bit recently in the latest ABS figures. Um, but our expectations are those prices will go up. Um, a bit like we saw earlier in the year, it's quite likely that the flooding events as they work their way through will lead to some shortages of some products. Um, but... We also suspect that given the, the broad, I guess, scale of production that we have, that we should have good availability of certain products. So while we might experience, like before we saw iceberg lettuces really become a rare commodity and prices go up quite high, there was still other fruits and vegetables on the, on the supermarket shelves. And we're expecting that kind of situation to, to again repeat um, as a result of this flooding event. Um, but that should also mean hopefully that We don't have widespread outages or shortages.
2: Dr. Jared Greenville is the Executive Director of ABARES. And as he just explained, in many parts of the country, fresh produce prices are on the rise. To find out more, I went to Melbourne's northern suburbs where wholesaler Michael Piccolo says that not only are they rising, they're rising quickly.
3: Exactly. So what we're finding is Initially, when this all happens, we're in the Queensland season. So once the Queensland season commences, we don't see the effects of the floods in Victoria until we start all the stock coming through from Victoria. So now we're seeing that follow on effect from the floods. So we're seeing it with our onions, our red onions, our capsicums, our eggplant, um, our watermelon, because it's grown in Missouri this time of year. So we're starting to see now the prices are starting to rise and a shortage of stock.
2: To what extent, um, you know, for some common staples, things like onions, for instance, has the price risen?
3: I think it's risen probably 200%. It's, It's a high rise. I mean, this time of year, usually we're purchasing onions, 10 kilo onions for maybe $7 a bag. And now we're purchasing, you know, close to 20. So it's it's tripled even more. So it's it's a high rise. It is a high rise. And they're saying that it'll stay like that probably right through till the middle of January until we start to see a South Australian stock come through. That'll give us a bit more relief.
2: Over what time period is that two hundred percent? Has that been all year or just for the season?
3: It's this season now. So we we've seen the rise probably within a month. So we've probably we're at maybe, you know, eight to dollar nine mark for a ten kilo bag, and now we're we're right up to to our $20 mark for anything new season. So it is, it's, it's quick. When it happens, it happens quickly. It's a, it's a sort of weekly, fortnightly thing that we notice that the shift in the market happens and prices rise.
2: This has kind of been like a long moving um, phenomenon, the wet spring. Mm. So are we going to see anything as acute as uh, the $10 lettuces that it- the shelves, uh, or is I it don't. A, a subtle situation. Than that? I think it's
3: a bit more subtle. So we're finding that it's more the vegetable lines that are getting affected. So I think this is the height of where it's going to be. Um, then we start to see a lot of imported stock come through. So we're starting to see a lot of Californian onions come through, red onions, and we're actually seeing them from Holland as well. So these sort of countries come in and fill gaps um, until we start to see a lot more of our local produce come on.
2: Does it get to a point where, um, you know, you can get onions from Holland because the local price is so high that you can suddenly justify shipping it from that far?
3: Yes. Yes, that's what we're finding. So we're finding, let's say, onions from Queensland. They're asking, you know, let's say maybe $40 a bag for 20 kilo, whereas they're starting to ship in onions from, you know, California, and it's basically the same price. So there, and the quality is very good. So that's what we're finding now that um, the imports start to come in because we just don't have the produce here at the moment.
2: And cold, wet conditions combined with like bursts of uh, sunshine and warm days, um, what's that doing to the quality of the produce?
3: It affects the quality. So what we find is with all our leafy lines, it starts to affect all our leafy lines like our spinach salad mix, our rocket. Um, our iceberg lettuce, all these types of products, it's getting majorly affected because once we get a lot of rain and then heat, the the product pretty much cooks. So the shelf life is very short.
2: How long do people think this is going
3: to last for? Look, from what we're gathering and from what we're hearing from growers and wholesalers, I think it'll push through to probably the end of Jan, Feb. So it's probably a two month thing leading up to Christmas, it'll be high prices. And then I think after Christmas, we'll start to see them settle, but they'll still be pretty high. So we're finding even cherries have been majorly affected as well. That's another product that got knocked around from hail, rain, and now the heat. So I think their yields are down to like 30%.
2: And even once the seasonal conditions correct, um, you know, just with the environment we're in now, everyone's paying more for fuel, everyone's paying more to keep the lights on, farmers are paying more Mm -hmm. for fertilizer. So the settle down from the weather effect will still be stabilising at a higher price. Than
3: we, yeah, it it will. I mean, we've found that probably from the floods of Queensland, that once everything started to stabilise, it started to stabilise at a higher point. So we found probably 20% higher. That's what we were seeing. Um, it can fluctuate, but we were noticing that. Yeah, I think with all the rate, you know, rises of petrol and and fertiliser with growers and all that, it's just just risen there the prices of the produce.
2: So it's going to be an expensive Christmas.
3: It is. It
2: is. Fresh produce wholesaler Michael Piccolo. My thanks this week to Serena Locke, Kath Macklin and Matthew Crawford for helping bring country breakfast together. Our final meal is being served from WA next week so I look forward to bringing you some of the best coast's finest. They're breaking daily records over there for grain receivables at the moment so keen to chat about that. And in the meantime, my Saturday morning colleagues are standing by for more of the best radio here on ABC RN.